Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Here in Israel, we're approaching the end of one of the biannual holiday seasons. It's common knowledge that there is a holiday, or perhaps a better word would be holy day, season in the fall of the year, generally starting in September. That's from the beginning of the Jewish New Year and ending after the holiday of Sukkot. That period has a duration of about three weeks. There's also a second period in the spring. It starts with the holy days of Passover and includes a number of additional days that have been added here in Israel. One is Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is the 27th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, which came out this year on April 28, followed by Memorial Day in the memory of those fallen in Israel since the start of Jewish settlement. That was on May 4th, followed by Israel Independence Day, which is on the 5th of May. That was last Thursday. The final day in this remembrance season is Jerusalem Day, which is the day that Jerusalem was conquered by the Israeli army in the Six-Day War in 1967. This year it comes out on May 29th. One of the sad things about Jerusalem Day is it is commemorated and celebrated only in Jerusalem and not in the rest of the country. I think it was a mistake not to make it a national holiday. It's the first time in almost 2,000 years that Jerusalem is under Jewish control and Jewish sovereignty. I think it's just as important and just as meaningful as Independence Day. So in general, my program this week touches upon a number of things which I think should interest the listeners. I avoid, I avoid talking about politics here in Israel. Politics here is rather disgraceful. The members of the Knesset owe their, owe, their, owe their loyalty to the party leaders and not to the electorate. That's a basic problem that Israel has yet to overcome. So I try to present to listeners things of interest in Israel and the Jewish world. Politics is confusing and depressing, and I want the listeners to be optimistic about Israel and the Jewish future. Thanks for listening. I'll be back after the break. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Good 
you're back with Jay Shapiro. Since Israel just celebrated its birthday, I want to say a few words about the European obsession with Israel. In Europe, the number of Jews, Jews continues to decline, but the disease of anti-Semitism continues to rise. According to a European Union poll, 85% of European Jews see anti-Semitism as a major problem in their lives. So now, here in the world of the 21st century, European anti-Semitism and its most popular contemporary form, Israel bashing. This sort of begs the question, why are Europeans still obsessed with Jews and the Jew among nations while working overtime to support their enemies? A CNN survey survey in 2018 found that only 54% of Europeans said that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. In other words, nearly half of Europeans think that one Jewish state has no right to exist. This does not bode well for future Israeli-European relations. From From an Israeli economic perspective, This matters greatly because Europe is its number one trading partner. How the European Union acts politically against Israel, whether it chooses to increase its support of the BDS movement, can profoundly affect Israel's economic and military security in the years to come. Making matters even worse, a dangerous fallacy is on the rise that denies that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism at all. Anti-Zionism hides behind a veneer of respectability. At its rotten core is the notion that it's acceptable to deny the Jewish people the freedom to exercise its rights to self-determination. There's no shortage of European politicians mourning dead Jews, but where are some of those leaders when living Jews are being victimized for real or imagined actions of Israel? Using a politicized definition of human rights as a weapon against Israel allows Europeans to claim the moral high ground, but their morality appears bankrupt as they developed an entrenched double standard against Israel as compared to their muted response to obviously more egregious human rights problems around the world. For example, lobbying for unrestricted trade one of the world's most odious malefactors, Iran. They see no hypocrisy supporting a gas pipeline from Russia that will enrich a nation that not only is a human rights nightmare, but one that occupies other sovereign nations' territory, like Crimea and Ukraine and Georgia. China, the world's number one human rights abuser, has upwards of a million of its Uyghur people in re-education camps. They're threatening the democracy of Taiwan. They throw democracy activists in jail in Hong Kong, but still has virtually unrestricted trade with Europe. Yet the Europeans invest a disproportionate amount of time discussing and strategizing on ways to boycott Israeli goods. Adding fuel to the anti-Semitic fire, most European nations at best only abstain from UN resolutions against Israel. Israel and Europe have a complex relationship. 
The European Union is Israel's number one trading partner, yet the European Union seems to be on its way to accepting some form of boycotting Israel because what they claim is Israel's occupation of the West Bank. With the line between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism disappearing by the day, Europe is not only hostile to Israel, but it is hostile to Jews themselves. Nothing drives home Europe's ambivalent feelings regarding Israel than its attempts to economically support the anti-Semitic theocratic Islamic Republic of Iran, the nations whose authoritarian Islamic leaders repeatedly call for eliminating the Zionist state while trafficking in the demonization of the Jews. Europeans even tried to create a financial system to bypass American sanctions and enrich the terrorist state of Iran. Western European enthusiasm for a nuclear agreement that guarantees to put nuclear weapons in the hands of Israel's chief enemy while paying lip service to their human rights behavior and maniacally hateful rhetoric makes one wonder what motivates such persistent animosity. According to the European Union foreign policy chief, a fellow named Jobit Borrell, reviving nuclear deal, the JCPOA, is the most urgent and important diplomatic priority for the Biden administration in order to improve U.S. European relations. They completely reject any efforts to expand the agreement to address matters outside its current scope, like human rights or terrorism. To us, they said, the Europeans, the Iran nuclear deal is a triumph of diplomacy, and we are very proud of it. That's what the European position is. Despite European self-righteousness, they're, uh, and they're claiming they want Israel to improve its human rights record, the European Union chooses to defend a regime dripping with Jew hatred. The European Union showed its true colors when it did not stand with the Iranian people who risked their lives to express their outrage at their government for its abuse and torture of its people. The, the, the Europeans are not interested in human rights, apparently, when they can make money. It, the, um, it's interesting that uh, the European anti-Semitism expresses itself in many ways. For example, why has Europe given over $100 million to 35 NGOs supporting the International Criminal Court's witch hunt to delegitimize Israel? In 2015, the European Commission decided to create a double standard against Israel by labeling all Israeli goods produced over the so-called armistice line, that's the 1967 line, to help consumers boycott Israel. It's a move reminiscent of the Nazi era. Still, anti-Zionist Europeans see it more analogous to the boycott of South Africa because they oppose that country's apartheid. No other nation's goods in disputed territories from Kashmir to northern Cyprus warrant such a boycott by, uh, is, by Europe, only Israel. 
So is all of this explained by the Europeans' two-millennia-long history of anti-Semitism that now expresses itself as a more politically correct hatred of the Jewish nation? Or is it the modern European bureaucrat who is part of the self-anointed, enlightened, progressive left who sees Israel as an aberration in modernity, a nationalist colonial project that belongs to a different era. Is that how they see Israel? A more contemporary answer to understanding the resurrection of Europe's long history of Jew hatred while painting itself as a moral force for good began with the 1974 Arab oil league embargo after the Arab-Israel Yom Kippur War. It was a significant turning point in moving Europeans from support of Israel that that asked, asked, that more or less comforted their guilt for the Holocaust to resurrecting anti-Semitism, but in a politically correct incarnation. The, this was best evidenced by French President de Gaulle's anti-Semitic response after the Israelis defeated the Arabs in the Six-Day War. He called the Jews an elitist and domineering people. They used the word interchangeably with Israeli. French foreign policy then turned decidedly pro-Arab and anti-Israel, allowing France to pull other European nations against Israel after the Arab oil embargo. So, for example, French President Chirac in 2001 blamed Israel in the failure of Camp David, not Arafat, who started the Second Intifada and rejected a Palestinian state. In response to this, Israel is quietly beginning to hedge its bets and quietly economically pivoting from Europe to the Far East and the Asian subcontinent over the next generation or two. If boycotts grow and are enforced for Israel economic survival, this will become a necessity. Israel's strengthening relationships, China, India, Korea, Taiwan, and other nations, where is no, there is no legacy of anti-Semitism. So it decreases the impact of growing European boycotts. And this is how you can look upon the way Israel is turning toward the Far East. The... Uh, Unless they deal with their growing Muslims population, which is what's happening in Europe, the Jew hatred will increase. It doesn't distinguish between Jewish citizens of Europe and Israel, and any progress fighting anti-Semitism will be marginal at best. They, we have that is the situation. The Jews of Europe will continue to emigrate. And uh, in a sense, they'll fulfill Hitler's dream of Europe without Jews, but not the way that he thought. So the European obsession with Israel is something that's no longer under the headlines. And that is why Israel is, is uh, quite, quite uh, smartly turning toward the Far East. I'll be back after the break.
Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For Lighten Up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Ephraim Zuroff is the director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center of the Israel Office and the Eastern European Affairs and coordinator of the Center's Nazi War Crimes Research Worldwide. And he gave me some information this week that I want to share with the listeners. Practically every person who works in the field of Holocaust commemoration and research and education and activism is well aware that there are only two weeks a year that the local media here in Israel are truly interested in stories about various aspects of the Shoah. One is the week of Yom HaShoah, Israeli Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is is observed on the 27th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, six days after the end of Passover. And why was this day chosen? Because it was a day during which the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt took place. The Warsaw Ghetto Revolt started on April 19, 1943, which was the eve of Passover, and lasted until approximately the fifth day of the Hebrew month of Er, the day on which Israeli independence was declared five years later. The second is the week of January 27th, the anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp in 1945, which was established as an international memorial day by the United Nations in 2005. These two weeks are like a breath of fresh air for the many hundreds of people in numerous different countries all over the world who have dedicated their lives to various aspects of the Holocaust, and they spend many hours each week dealing with a very painful, sensitive, in many cases, heart-wrenching subject. It's only natural, therefore, for many such individuals to look forward to these dates and plan in advance how to maximize the media's biannual interest in Holocaust-related stories and issues. 
Ephraim Zurv himself tells me that twice a year, he tries to make sure to write at least one or two op-eds on various aspects of our continuing efforts to maximize justice and our fight against Holocaust distortion, which are the two main issues that his office concentrates on. So, for example, uh, Zurov arranges the publication of the findings of an annual report which is entitled Investigation and Prosecution of Nazi War Criminals to coincide with the two weeks in which media interest is at its highest level. Needless to say, as the number of Holocaust perpetrators diminishes due to age, there was less and less interest in the trials, although the dramatic change in German prosecution policy which was instituted slightly more than a decade ago, which which is interesting. Now, death camp guards could be convicted of accessory to murder based simply on their service in a concentration camp. So there is some increased interest. The uh, For the past 36 years, The toughest subject has always been Israeli television, especially the morning talk shows. Several times over the past years, they have contacted uh, Zurov, only to be told the night before that the subject has been dropped. So now, this year, the producer of Channel 13's morning show called Haolam Haboker called Zurov almost three weeks before Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and in in order to ensure his participation in the program slated. Also, the the show itself, which has a researcher, spent well over an hour on the phone with Zurov the day before to collect as many details and anecdotes as he could on the most interesting and exciting case of Nazi criminals, which Zurov had helped to bring to justice. uh, It's interesting. It it was well worth it for now to, again, a reminder to the people of Israel about the Holocaust. So uh, it's interesting the, the the interview that uh, was supposed to have Zurov um, on here on Israel Radio was supposed to last about eight or nine minutes, but ultimately was on for 15 minutes. So the uh, it, it really, they're not giving enough time on Israel TV, on Israel Radio, the, the, or to, to Nazi hunting. The so the uh, needless to say, the it was obvious that the problem had nothing to do with the Holocaust, or rather, it was a far deeper problem, which is the lack of interest and concern in Israeli commercial television regarding the efforts to bring Nazis to justice. The uh, the it's surprising that there is a lack of interest in the subject of Nazi hunting by Israeli TV. The, uh, it's, it, there is a, it's very sad, really. 
really sad that Israel TV itself doesn't take an interest in Nazi hunting, which is still an important thing. These people were perpetrators of terrible crimes, and those, the uh, the office here in the um, the Wiesenthal Center is is trying to find them, these Nazis, no matter how old they are, because they should be brought to justice. So the bottom line seems to be, according to Ephraim Zuroff, that Israeli television, sadly, has lost all interest in Nazi hunting, which really, it's, that's really, you think about, it's really a terrible thing. These crimes were performed by these people, and as I said a moment ago, even guards, the law in Germany allows even people who are guards in concentration camps to be brought to justice. They did terrible crimes, and even though years have passed, some of them are still alive, they have to be brought to justice, and it's very sad that Israeli TV has lost interest in Nazi hunting. That reflects poorly, not so much on the state of Israel, but poorly on radio and television in the state of Israel, which should keep particularly the young generation aware of what happened in Europe during the Holocaust. It is, it is the job of the, of the media to keep Jewish history alive. And for better or for worse, or even to say, unfortunately, the Holocaust is part of our history. And it's not just that we have to teach it in the schools, but it's important that the younger generation know our history so that will better uh, prepare them to face whatever they have to face as adults here in Israel. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in the world. I spoke about that in the first part of the program. And part of fighting anti-Semitism is learning about it, and learning about it includes the Holocaust. The very fact that the Israeli media are losing interest in the Holocaust is really a bad sign. And uh, hopefully some, someone will bring pressure, or some organizations will bring pressure on the Israeli media to keep this idea, memory alive, it's got to be keep it kept in mind that the media are really part of the education system. People are the kids who, who they go to school and they learn all kinds of things. But as I understand it, the younger generation now gets most of its information, or at least a, a good bit of its information from the media. And the media is now a part of the educational system, whether they like it or not. And part of the educational system in Israel must include memory of the Holocaust. That is something that happened in my own time. And I'm aware of it. And I think it's very important that the new generation in Israel be kept alive, not only learning long-time Jewish history from thousands of years ago, which is obviously important, but what happened within the last hundred years is just as important. And we have to learn these things to make sure that they're not repeated. And we have to strengthen our younger generation by proper education. And the media is part of that educa education. And if they're not interested in the Holocaust anymore, that speaks very poorly 
of Israeli media, really, and something should be done about. I, I myself are not involved, but I'm aware of what's happening, and I think this thing has to be corrected. I'll be speaking to my friend Ephraim Zurov about it because he might be in a position to put pressure on those people responsible for the media because the media today is a major educational system. At any rate, it's a sad situation and I hope it will be corrected. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany's but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel. Phantom Nation, every Monday. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. There is a rabbi here in Israel named Lopez Cardoza, and he writes uh, books and daily and weekly columns. And he wrote something just before Yom HaAtzma'ud, Israel Independence Day, that I found so moving that I want to share it with the listeners. Yom Ma'ut commemorates the anniversary of a marriage that has lasted more than 3,500 years. This may sound like a paradox, but it is the inescapable truth about the land of Israel and the Jewish people. No marriage has lasted this long, been so deep in its commitment, and so overwhelming in its love as the one between the Jews and their homeland. Yet no marriage has been so painful or so tragic, for the partners were forced apart by the Roman Empire nearly 2,000 years ago. The bride and the groom, Israel and the land of Israel, pledged unconditional love but were not reunited for another 1,878 years. However, for all those years, nothing, absolutely nothing, could emotionally separate the partners, the Jews and their land, even when they were thousands of miles away from each other. This marriage did not depend on where the partners were located, but rather where their souls dwell. For the marriage to succeed, the Jews metaphorically and unprecedentedly lifted the land of Israel from its native soil and transformed it into a portable homeland, taking it with them to all four corners of the earth. 
Only in 1948 were the Jewish people and the Jewish land physically reunited. The founding of the State of Israel, then, is not the beginning of the marriage between the land and the Jewish people, but rather a reaffirmation of the marriage commitment that took place thousands of years ago between God and Abraham. The State of Israel was not established in 1948, but more than 3,000 years ago, when Abraham purchased the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, in Hebron, in order to bury his wife Sarah. The marriage was reaffirmed a few hundred years later when the Israelites inherited the land under the leadership of Joshua immediately after Moshe's death and again in 1948. But no marriage should be taken for granted, not even after 3,000 years. When a bridegroom offers his new wife a ring as a sign of commitment, he knows that this is only the first installment of an ongoing pledge. No marriage can endure unless both partners do not constantly reinvest in their relationship. The moment a marriage is counted in years, rather than marked by shared striving for new opportunities, it has come to an end. Only a mission, a common dream, can sustain a marriage, and only something greater than the marriage itself will allow it to succeed. To paraphrase Aristotle, marriage is a single soul dwelling in two bodies, but a soul that has lost its purpose has lost itself. Although today we see a clear change in Israeli society, and more and more Israelis are searching for their Jewish religious roots, it cannot be denied that a significant part of people of Israel are struggling to stay spiritually married to their land. Rampant materialism, secularism, and religious fanaticism have eroded Israel's sense of Jewish identity and the, and the historical consciousness that gives meaning to its national existence. Sadly, large numbers of the people lack Jewish self-understanding and wonder why they should live in the country at all. It is true that the wonderful Israeli soldiers are ready to sacrifice their lives for the country, but how long can this continue when Israel is nothing more than just a country? People are willing to die only for that by which they have lived, and human beings can live meaningful lives only when they know that there is something eternal worth dying for. It is thus crucial to identify the element that has bound two partners together for these thousands of years. And that element is unequivocally the mission to be a light unto the nations, as pronounced by God to the prophet Isaiah, the marriage was created to give birth to a wellspring of religious and moral teachings as taught by the Torah and Judaism, so that it will suffuse mankind with the knowledge that life is holy and 
God awaits man's response to his call in order to redeem the world. This, then, is the task of the land and the people of Israel, to elevate humanity so that it becomes a link between the divine and the earthly. For life is a mandate, a privilege, not a game or mere triviality. The Jewish people married the land in order to create a model society to be emulated by all mankind. It is the rabbis who consecrate a marriage, but that's only part of their task. As pastors, the responsibility is to ensure the marriage success and tend to it should, should it flounder or stagnate. This is the task of Israel's religious leadership today. It must transform the Jewish people by creating a spiritual longing for our unique mission, thereby restoring this marriage to its full potential after a long and difficult separation. True religious leaders should not be honored or shown great respect. Rather, as women and men of truth, they should stir unprecedented awe among Israelis and all Jews. Simultaneously, their personalities should draw people closer to them and to their own overflowing love. These times demand unwavering religious and moral guidance. The religious leadership must extricate itself from the morass in which it has become mired. In an unprecedented initiative, it must steer the ship of an inspiring, rejuvenated Judaism in full sail right into the heart of Israeli society, causing shockwaves that will impact every aspect of life. It's no longer that the rabbinate and the rabbi should be concerned just with the kashrut of our food or the question of who is a Jew and who is not. The rabbinate needs to inspire the kashrut of our souls. Like the prophets of old, our religious leaders must generate a spiritual revolution, triggering an ethical religious uproar that shakes the very foundations of the state. Not doing so is nothing less than a tragic dereliction of duty. Israel's are waiting for a move, and there is little doubt that the response of the Israelis will be overwhelming. Only then will the Jewish people re-engage with this land. Only then can the Jewish people stay eternally married to this land. Only then will there be no third party, whether European anti-Semitism or BDS efforts or Muslim extremism or Jewish self-hate or the deceitfulness of the UN to dare interfere in the matrimonial bond of Israel and its land. This is Israel's hope and future. This is an eternal marriage, unquote. I've quoted up to now what Rabbi Cardoza wrote, because what he essentially is asking for is a renewal of the spirituality of the Jewish people. There are people who wanted Israel to be a state like other states. It simply doesn't work for the Jewish people. The reason I quoted what the rabbi said, because I myself believe, and I want to share my thoughts with the listeners, This to, to live in Israel and be part of the Jewish people and part of the Jewish future is a challenge. 
but one that can be met with sincerity. We are not a nation just like any other nation. We lost our homeland 2,000 years ago, and we never gave up the hope to return, and indeed, no other people has done what the Jewish people did. We've outlived all of the others, and it hasn't been easy. So we have to remember who we are and why we are here. That is the, really the message of uh, Israel Independence Day. I didn't uh, have I didn't discuss this last week because there were other things of interest at the time, but it's important now. Even though Independence Day is over, we have to remember what we should do with our independence, not just be a nation like any other nation, but to be a light unto the nations. It's not easy, but it's our challenge and our responsibility. Thanks again for listening. love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page, and don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.